Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn from Wiltshire, where it's very cold and there's snow on the ground. Hello, it's Richard Heller in south-east London. Um, it's very cold and no doubt we'll get the snow from Wiltshire in due course. I can hardly wait. We've got a most distinguished guest who's written two absolutely invaluable books, profoundly moving and sobering about cricket during World War One and, and World War Two. Um, John Broom, I, I've read them both uh, and learned so much. What a story. Yes, indeed. Um, so, Leslie, thank you both for having me on this podcast. I'm a regular listener. It's a real honour to be here. Um, yeah, I, I've been very interested in cricket since being a small boy. My first memory of, of cricket was a 1976 West Indies series and the parched um, pitch at the Oval. Uh, and I've read several history books, biographies, what you name it, over the years. Um, but it struck me a few years ago that really the period of both world wars had been massively glossed over. For example, if you look at uh, Swanton and Altham's um, history of cricket, you know, one of the key reference works of the game, I think Swanson manages to deal with a period of the First World War in one paragraph. And, and, and clearly to write off a, a key, what could have possibly been a key turning point of, of four or five seasons in one paragraph was clearly lacking. Obviously, more recently, with the anniversary of the Great War, uh, a few books have been published, one um, concentrating on the war dead, a couple of excellent books by Christopher Sanford on the the cricketers of 1914 and the cricketers of 1939 and how they sort of experienced warfare. But really the last um, significant work on the Second World War was um, Eric Midwinter writing back in the 1980s, The Lost Seasons. So I thought there was really a, a big gap in the cricketing historiography there um, on the game during those, those terrible times. Well, you certainly filled the gap, John, or gone a very, very long way to filling it. It's both of your books are very comprehensive. I was really struck by the fact that um, you covered cricket all around the world in the um, in both world wars, uh, particularly in the Second World War, where there were so many different locations yeah. for cricket. But um, also the main thing that struck me about both books is simply how much cricket was played in both the world wars. Not much of it first-class cricket, which is why it's been neglected. But... Um, a lot of very high-quality cricket played by top players. I think, yes. I mean, if we, if we start with the, the First World War, one of the big controversies at the at the start of the war was the continuation of the Bradford League. Now, most, as you said, first-class cricket stopped. Most or many cricketers and administrators thought it was bad form to continue playing for, for cups and medals and trinkets. But um, up here I am, actually, at the minute, in, in Yorkshire, the Bradford League took the decision not only to carry on with its normal uh, cup and league competition, but to attract some of the very finest players who obviously weren't playing for their county. So during the wartime seasons, Jack Hobbs, Frank Woolley, Sidney Barnes, uh, Jack Hearn, all played up here in that Bradford League. And, and it caused quite a lot of, of controversy and quite a lot of ill feeling between the, the league, the county club, of whom sort of Lord Hawke was president. Um, so that, that was really the, the story of the early part of the First World War, was cricket really coming to terms with what was its role in an era of near total war, because there was no blueprint for this previously. I was very fascinated by that aspect um, of your book, 
by the way, I mean, the most biggest thing of all, of course, is just a sheer number of deaths. Yes. Anyway, we'll come on to that. Mm. Um, carnage affected them as with everybody else. But um, the it was a very, I was very struck. Here's Frank Woolley, Jack Hobbs, one of the greatest players who ever lived. Mm. Um, fit as a fiddle, you'd have thought. Yeah. Um, now, one recollects, you know, in World War II, the, you know, Bradman went mm. on notoriously uh, as a stockbroker. Um, well, uh, careful, only after he'd been invalided out of the army as, uh, as a fitness instructor. Well, that was contentious. Yes. yes. And um, then you get the, you know, Jack Hobbs, <laughs> there he is merrily playing cricket, Lord Hawke, as you draw out, condemns mm. this. The, the, George Hawke was the great administrator of Grandee yeah. of, of, the, of the age. Now, why, why, why wasn't Willie and Hobbs play, uh, at war? I think in, in Willie's case, he had tried to join and he wasn't considered uh, fit enough initially. He did end up joining, I think, the Royal Naval uh, Reserve. Um, but another eminent cricketer, Phil Mead of Hampshire, wasn't allowed in into the military because of varicose veins in one leg. Um, I think initially, initially, the army wanted a certain calibre and fitness of men, and incidentally, Plum Warner, um, he got a, a staff job in the war, and he pointed out to the military authorities that many cricketers didn't reach their peak until they were gone 30, so to reject men on the basis of age and, and minor physical impairment was quite ridiculous. But going back to the, the case of Jack Hobbs, who I think he was 32 years old when war broke out. Um, his reasoning was that he had a, a wife four children and an invalid mother to look after. And therefore, he took the decision. His first duty was to provide for, for his family. Um, across the piece, um, at the beginning of the war, Johnny Douglas, who was Captain England before the war, was Captain England after the war, he, he was straight in, um, promoted to Major, then Lieutenant Colonel. So I think um, Hobbs and, and Sidney Barnes as well are, are outliers in terms of not engaging with the, the general tone of 1914 and 1915, because on the whole, cricketers did rush to the colours. Yes, it's, uh, they are the, they were the two greatest England cricketers mm. of the time. Yeah. I mean, it's like Stokes and uh, Bester or something, not yeah. going to war, isn't it? It's, it's yeah. uh, it, where everybody else is being mobilised. You've got the greatest cricketer mm. of all time, W.G. Grace, writing this letter mm. in uh, late August, I think it was, 1914, yeah. saying that cricket must stop and we must go. To, we must all go to war. Yeah, I think that was very much backed up by the, by the county clubs. There was lots of um, pressure exerted to uh, to be seen, each county wants to be seen to be encouraging their men to, to go to war. And it wasn't just the county clubs as well. There's reports of club cricketers linking arms and marching to the recruitment office. So uh, there was a little bit of uh, controversy through the late summer of 1914. Obviously, the war, Britain joined the war um, in, in the later summer, but the county championship was in full swing. What should we do? Should we discontinue it? Should we see it through to the end? Initially, the MCC wanted to see the county championship through. They argued that it would be seen to be panicking in the face of German aggression to, to cancel these things. So it carried on, but gradually... Um, cricketers started to disappear. Famously, Arthur Carr was batting for Nottinghamshire. He was in, I think it was in the Territorials, received a telegram when he was at the wicket, said, I'll have one more over, hit a few balls and then got himself out and went off to join his regiment. Um, mm -hmm. Lionel Tennyson, future captain of England, he was at the front by the 5th of September. 
Uh, Alf Dipper of Gloucestershire just went off and left the Gloucestershire team list with, with 10 men on it. So as August rolled on through, it became increasingly embarrassing for cricket to carry on. Um, comparisons were made with Rugby Union, which had sort of cancelled its entire programme. And association football as well uh, got some stick because they basically carried on a, a competitive league programme throughout the war. So cricket was in this tricky situation, looking one hand at Rugby Union, the other hand at um, association football, what should we do? Where should we? And the presented, of course, with an immediate problem because the county season is in full swing when war breaks out. And at the beginning of the of war in August 1914, there was still this attitude, you know, all all be over by Christmas. People were still expecting officially a short war and Churchill launches the slogan business as usual. So there's it's a little bit of an excuse for carrying on with your normal way of life, isn't there? That's right. And, um, you know, provisions were made. There were ad- advertisements in newspapers, um, clubs in Scotland, clubs in um, the north of England and the Midlands advertising for professional players for the 1915 season. You know, please, please send us your most recent averages. Mm-hmm. And players of county standard wanted to play up in, in, in Scotland. So, yes, there was the idea it would be all over by Christmas and would resume 1915 as normal. Which is, of course, jumping ahead, quite the opposite of 1939. 1939, um, we don't go to war until September. The creep season's almost over. But everybody knows then that it's, we're mm. in for a long war and, and cricket's not going to continue. But yes, and one of the like, nice details in your book in, on Second World War, of course, the West, touring West Indies team leave early because of the uh, they know there's going to be U-boat issues mm. crossing the Atlantic. Oh. Well, uh, all but three of them leave, don't they? Because um, Larry Constantine and Manny Martindale, who had previously played in the Lancashire Leagues, stayed on and, and stayed on through Britain. In fact, Martindale made a very patriotic speech at, um, at a cricket dinner, I think late 39, early 1940. And of course, the third um, West in- member of that West Indian team to stay on in England during the Second World War was Bertie Clark. I play. I can't resist saying I played against Bertie yes. Clark. He had a and uh, in late in, in well into his seventies, he was playing for the BBC, and he was still an absolutely mesmerising leg spin bowler. I love, I love it. Tell us when, when when did you play against Bertie Clark? I, he the the Lords and Commons British Parliament's cricket team used to play against the BBC in Maltzburg Park, uh, South West London, and um, regularly that fixture was just a procession of wickets for Bertie Clark. <laughs> <laughs> then in his 70s, um, you know, making parliamentarians and ringers like me look absolute, well, well as we were, look absolute amateurs. Um, but, but yeah, you were, that is, it's interesting because you're in his 70s, but actually Lords and Commons, probably good, very good, decent players in it, a good team. You he, made better, he, made, he made better players than me look um, very flat-footed um, in his 70s. Um, as you know, John, he'd had a lot of ups and downs in his career up until uh, up until then, particularly post-war. But as an um, aside, uh, yes, I know his daughter is looking to find a, an author to write a, a biography of him. She's collected interviews with Everton Weeks, Gary Sobers, and I think there's a real fascinating biography there to be written. I think so too. But uh, I think we must go back to... World yeah. War One. Um, main thing we all remember about World War One is the scale of the casualties, mm. and they, they, you know, they, there are a lot of notable cricket casualties. The most famous, of course, being um, England's Colin Blythe. Um, but um, 
Tibby Cotter of Australia was another one. And a very sad story in your book is um, is that a Major Booth? Major's his first name, isn't it? Yeah. Not his, it's not, not his rank. Yes, yeah, so Yorkshire all-rounder. I think he played during the 1913-14 tour of South Africa. He'd been active in recruitment. You know, we talked about Hobbs and, and Woolley, etc. But on the counter side, Major Booth had been active in recruitment around Leeds. He'd um, been part of a, a tram crusade, as it were, where a tram would leave Leeds Town Hall. It would go towards Pudsey Town Hall, so to the north of Leeds. And at every tram stop, Booth and his, his, his club county colleague, Arthur Dolphin, would get out. They'd, they'd rouse people waiting at the bus stop to to join, join the tram car and arrive at Pudsey Town Hall to a great feast and celebration that was waiting for them and some and some attestation forms. And so he'd be very active in recruitment. But yeah, he, was in, um, he went over the top on the first day of the Battle of the Somme, 1st of July 1916, um, in the first wave. In a later wave was his county colleague, Abe Waddington, who found Booth in a crater in no man's land, basically dying. And he... He um, died in Waddington's arms. It's, it's moving. You can just uh, talk about it now. And um, as a postscript to that, um, Booth's sister kept a candle lit, I think, in his room in their Yorkshire home in the hope that there was some mistake, mistaken identity, and that he would one day return home. So very sad, lingering sadness um, throughout that, that terrible episode. Story of so, so many families, so many brave young men who were uh, in that, what seems to us now, more than 100 years on, wholly pointless. This issue of of loss, and it's something I've covered in other research I've done, but the, the sheer amount of men who were completely lost, families had no graves to go to. I mean, one of the casualties of war, and the early casualties, was um, A.E.J. Collins, who'd famously made 628 in a, in a house match at, at Clifton College, his name's on the Menning Gate, uh, never, never to be found again. And and in terms of casualties, one one little known fact was that South Africa, uh, actually seven South African Test players killed in the First World War, compared to four English and the one Australian you've mentioned, Tibby Cotter. Yes, and uh, tell us about those uh, South African Test players, the two great googly bowlers. You know, who completely reinvented mm. the art of bowling, uh, building on Bozy Bosenquet's mm. discovery. That was Schwartz and um, what's the Albury um, Albury Faulkner? No, no, no. Albury Faulkner. Uh, he, he ended up running a cricket school, didn't he? Albury Faulkner. He had a very distinguished yeah. war, didn't he? For yeah. And but Schwartz died in but in the pneumonia epidemic. You know, in the flu. Influenza. Yeah. Yeah, the Spanish flu. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I think that, I mean, you've, you've, on a recent podcast, you covered sort of the early history of, of South African cricket and that wonderful book that came out recently, uh, Swallows and Hawk. As we know, a lot of these South Africans were almost multinational players, you know, in the early South African and English teams, a lot of players would swap between them. So it's, it's hardly surprising. I mean, there were two South African um, test players who died in the Second World War as well. So, you know, their contribution should should not be forgotten. Absolutely. Um, another notable victim uh, in the First World War was Percy Jeeves, wasn't he? Inspiration for P.G. Yeah. Woodhouse's character. A very sad story. Yes, another young man who may well have been an eminent test player of the of the 1920s. What, what was nice as a postscript to that was that um, 
his descendants and P.G. Woodhouse's descendants a few years ago planted a tree at uh, Clifton College where um, Woodhouse had seen Jeeves play and, and allegedly that's where he got the inspiration to use a name for his famous um, famous valet. So, yeah, I mean, it, cricketers, great, you know, the, the eminent, the test players, the the solid county players with potential. But I think, you know, the, the, the sad thing is trolling through the, the newspapers is just the volume of ordinary club cricketers as well. It, it just ripped the heart out of, of the game from the test, the county, the clubs, the, 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 the amateur game. It was just horrendous. So what you, you recapitulate each wisdom. So in 1915... That, that's the first one since yeah. the outbreak of war. That's a full. That's a full eight hundred page wisdom, isn't it? With with, with the previous year's season and perhaps the old, early obituary. Yeah, has has cricketers of the year. Um, talk talk of obituaries. Lionel Tennyson returned from the front in nineteen fourteen to read his own obituary in the Times. Quite <laughs> right. yeah. yeah. a lot of that, of course, because yeah. of the chaos of of mm. war. And th- but then in in the nineteen sixteen wisdom. Mm. Then it's dominated, isn't it? How many pages of obituaries do you get then? Oh, so several. And by 1917, it's basically um, it's one of the rarest copies of Wisdom to to acquire because it had all the the obituaries and the carnage of 1916 and the great battles there. And many parents um, bought it as a memorial to their to their lost sons. Uh, as you say, very little cricket in it, a little bit of public school cricket, but it's one of the hardest to get to get hold of because of the print run was very small and parents just snapped it up because it was some connection to their son, some record of where you know, their son had been appreciated and, and memorialised. So yes, wisdom gets thinner and thinner and the death toll gets higher and higher. It's reckoned that um, from the First World War, one in every 11 men who played first-class cricket in the decade or so before the war was a, a fatal casualty of the war, which, which is in line with um, you know, the national picture as well. So, you know, did cricket do its bit? It certainly did, despite all the ongoing controversies around the Bradford League. What about the cricketers who came back wounded and, and mentally scarred? Was there any sort of special provision made for them? Well, there's an interesting story of a, a man called Arthur Denton. Um, he came back with the, the use of only one leg. But he did play a few matches for Northamptonshire in the 1919 season. And he he needed a runner. And um, Northamptonshire wrote to Lancashire because they're due to play and say, would it be all right for for us to arrange a runner in advance? You know, because he's not going to become injured, you know, incapacitated during the innings. And Lancashire wrote back, if if that man has has, has served, absolutely don't even need to ask the question. And and movingly, he, Arthur Denton, had two elder brothers who both played for Northamptonshire as well. And at one occasion, all three of them were at the wicket, one brother acting as a runner for Arthur and the other at the, at the non-striker's end. Um, so, yeah, people did come back. There was, there was um, there were other sad cases of, of post-war suicides. There was a, a chap who was going to, who was lined up to be um, possibly one of the first captains of Glamorgan when they attained first-class cricket status, but um, basically committed suicide, um, I think 1920 or, or 21. So the cricket came back very much um, denuded of players. Um, the, obviously, opportunities for young players to come through had been next to none. Um yeah, it was the, the Dyson Williams, Lieutenant Colonel Dyson Williams. Uh, he'd been treasurer of Glamorgan before the war. 
earned the MC for his exploits at the, at the Battle of Passchendaele, um, appeared for them briefly during the first class season of 1921, but then he was declared bankrupt and found dead in a friend's office, suicide while of unsound mind. Um, so yeah, it, it, there's the the carnage on on the, the the people who were killed, the carnage in people's bodies, and the carnage in people's minds. So it took English cricket a long time to rebuild from that. Did any cricketers become conscientious objectors in the First World War? Yeah, hmm. I, I couldn't find any. Um, I couldn't find any in your book. One or two cases you mentioned in the Second World War. That's right. Um, yeah. Uh, a gentleman, I hope I get his pronunciation right, Desmond Rort Rort. Um, again, again, one of a series, uh, quite a large Norfolk cricketing family. And if we know about large Norfolk cricketing families, our minds immediately turn to the Edriches. And of course, Bill Edrich was was a war here in the Second World War and the DFC. But he would quite happily turn out for, for Norfolk alongside Desmond Rort Rort, who was undertaking agricultural work. I, th I think the whole tone of attitude towards conscientious objection had, had shifted greatly between the First and Second World Wars. Neville Chamberlain um, had actually appeared on a military tribunal. He served on a military tribunal in the First World War. When he came up to drawing up the Military Service Act that would take into account conscientious objection in the Second World War, he left quite a few more spaces which men and women could get themselves into to accommodate their own sort of moral worldview with the situation that was presenting itself. So in the Second World War, though there were conscientious objectors and um, another couple, Johnny Lawrence, who went on to play for Somerset after the war, and his friend Miles Cooper also went on to play for Somerset, were conscientious objectors, but quite happily played in the Bradford League without any big controversy that I could find. I was interested in both world wars, John, to see the use of the of cricket as propaganda in, in the First World War. The, the, in both world wars, there was a very memorable caricature of the, the Kaiser playing cricket in, in your book on the First World War, or actually not playing cricket and being sort of um, foiled by, um, uh, you know, by the, by the English playing cricket properly. But there are a lot of cricketing metaphors used in both world wars, aren't there? Yes. Um, I mean, one of the more, um, I don't know if it's amusing is the word, one of the more noticeable contributions was um, Herbert Sutcliffe in the Second World War basically said that we wouldn't have a war if, if Hitler had been brought up playing cricket because yeah. it, it, it had learnt the, yeah, the right attitude to life. I love um, Home Gordon's... Uh, who's a staff captain in the local defence volunteers, uh, after Dunkirk, uh, and when, you know, that moment of uh, great, great national defiance, mm. it says uh, the dictator had, had captured the first two wickets of his express grubs, grubs. but our best bats have still to come in. <laughs> That's very, very... Uh... Yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, according to Eric Midwinter, the Second World War was the well, 1940s, was the last period where... Cricket was really hugely embedded into the national consciousness and everybody would pick up on these metaphors. It was hugely important that it was mentioned that eminent English cricketers of the First World War and of the Second World War were seen to be doing their, their bit. You know, in the Second World War, Hammond, Hutton, Compton, the Bedsers, all the great players of the 30s and 40s were, were straight in. So I couldn't find any major players who were conscientious objectors. And... Yes. On the subject of the Bedsters, uh, I was so struck by your account yeah. of June 9th. Again, I mean, Dunkirk. I, and the Bedsters were at Dunkirk, Jardine, 
was a dunk. Yeah. I mean, so they, as you say, stuck in. Well, the Bedsers, um, as we know, inseparable, Eric and Alec, to the extent they served to the same sort of unit throughout the war. And when they both, with their sort of character and skills, reached a level where one of them would have, I think it was Eric, would have been promoted, but the promotion would have meant that he wouldn't have been able to be in the same unit as Alec, turned it down so they could stay together throughout the war and to stay together through life. Interesting. The, um, just before we leave metaphors, I always liked the one, uh, the comment that was made when at the fall of Mussolini. I can't remember who it was. Somebody said, um, well, we've got Ponsford out cheaply, but Bradman is still batting. <laughs> <laughs> I really want to laugh about that because yeah, well, Bradman, yeah, Bradman, yes. Bradman doesn't deserve me to be compared with Hitler. He really doesn't. No. Um, but yes, I, I can see that. I think it's in the, in the Korean War, weren't the Welsh Guards being overrun by the Chinese and uh, they, 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 the American, some American staff officer rang, hi, getting on. Oh, it's a bit of a sticky wicket. Uh, and the Americans didn't understand what the British way of saying we're being put completely under fire and can't escape them. And uh, yeah, it was one of the darkest moments of the Korean War. Yeah, that probably been in the Gloucesters, wouldn't it? In the Gloucesters. Gl glorious, glorious Gloucesters at the Imjin River. As so often, Richard's uh, memory of mine is much finer than mine. He ends up having... No, no, I just remember that, just remember that particular detail. Um, John, one, as I said, your, your book um, is very comprehensive. It deals with, with um, cricket, not just in England, uh, but in you know, all the cricket-playing countries, including, incidentally, the United States, which uh, both World Wars have an influence on, um, on cricket in the United States. The United States have been uh, quite a major cricketing power in the in the 19th century, but with the um, formation of the Imperial Cricket Conference and the idea that that test status was closely bound up with imperial identity, sort of American cricket gradually got sidelined and and overtaken by by other sports. But yeah, there was a, there was a thriving cricket scene in America. They played regular matches against Canada, although they had to be discontinued because of the amount of Canadian men sort of joining the the, the army to, to fight for the, the British in the war. Um, yeah, American cricket remained resilient. In fact, when you look at wherever British servicemen and women were, and, and I say women deliberately, um, cricket was played. I found cricket on, on, on being played on, on lava beds in Iceland, in, in Iraq, in in, in, in 1917, was cricket being played in Tanzan's disastrous foray up to Baghdad? I, I believe so. It was certainly played um, within the sound of the Turkish guns. That there's a very famous picture of um, some Australians playing cricket. It was allegedly as, as to distract the Turks to think, oh well, that the, they obviously think things are fine. They could carry merrily playing on cricket, so we can. Um, Make, make our advances. Shell green. It just comes to me. Yes, uh, uh, shell green. So, um, yes, cricket was played extensively in the military. Obviously, men and women needed that recreation. That there's fame. That there's an account of Tibby Cotter, you know, who already mentioned, um, playing in a match against Johnny Douglas out in the in the Near East. Um, there was frequent appeals in newspapers for for cricket gear to be sent to troops um, in both in both world wars. 
Um, Sonny Avery, the, the Essex batsman who was serving in the Far East in the, the 14th Army, the Forgotten Army, you know, he he wrote actually during the 1945 season, we rather feel forgotten about out here. It'd be splendid if, you know, locals in Essex could band together and send us out some cricket gear to, to raise the men's morale. So in the military, the, the, the game of cricket itself did raise morale. Um, the New Zealanders and South Africans in particular serving in North Africa organised intricate um, league and cup competitions for the, for the soldiers serving there. Um, there, there was um, several um, inter-allied um, matches took place at the, the Gezira Club in um, in Egypt, in Cairo, where my own father served, actually. Um, you know, Lindsay Hassett played there, the, the great Australian captain, Dudley Norse, the great South African. And interesting sideline there, that is where Jim Laker learned how to become Jim Laker, the great off-spinner. Because at the start of the war, Jim Laker was playing for Saltair in the Bradford League. I think he was an opening batsman and useful medium-fast bowler. And then he went over to those matting wickets in the, in Egypt, took like 100 wickets a season at some ridiculous average, two, three or four, and came back as Jim Laker, the off-spinner. So he, he practised on a few Australians, like Hassett, ahead of the 1956 series out there. In, he did. He, was, he had Hassett in his pocket already due to the war. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that, that 19 wickets was born in... That's a big jump, isn't it? That 19 <laughs> performance was, was born at Gazira Sporting Club. Yes. Well, it was too, obviously too much for Hassett because he retired before... the 19, he re, He'd retired before 1956. He didn't want to face that again, did he? <laughs> Um, my my great grandfather, we have his diaries from World War One, and uh, the diaries of the song. He was at the song and behind the scenes. And it actually, it's quite incredible to read them because uh, one moment he's playing cricket behind the lines, uh, and the next moment he's yeah. he's going at the top. Yeah. Going, uh, looking at the overseas impact of cricket. I think in both World Wars, John, India is the only place which has a maintains its first-class programme. Yeah, and there were, there were there were several English players playing out and, um, in India during the First World War. In fact, I think that's where the during the First World War, the concept of having a neutral umpire first came about because, as you know, cricket in India was divided, uh, the, the, the Ramji Trophy was divided along sort of sectarian lines, wasn't it, religious, cultural lines. Therefore, any umpiring decision... That was seen to be unfair. Was was excessively heightened based on the the background of the umpire. So after an incident during the First World War, uh, neutral umpires were called for and actually um, put into place. So sort of eighty ninety years ahead of the time. Then in the Second World War, um, amongst players who, who appeared in the in the Ramji Trophy was um, Dennis Compton. Uh, I think we mentioned Jardine already. He played some. So cricket out in India, um, Dickie Dodds, the again the future Essex opening batsman, played played out there. So yeah, first class cricket continued in India, and in fact that's where um, in the West Indies Frank uh, Worrell emerged during the Second World War. Um, there's a huge partnership he made with with John Goddard. Um, so in inter island matches, first class first class status took place in the West Indies. As you say, first class cricket continued in India. There was a one or two first class matches in South Africa. So I think Wally Hammond became the only English player to score a first class century during the war. There's a that's an odd fact. 
Where did he play? Where, Wally was playing in, uh, Wally Hammond was playing in South Africa. He was right? playing South, he spent a lot of the war in South Africa, as we know, he, he sort of retired there after his playing playing career was ended. Mm. Um, yeah, he was, he was hugely popular out there. I think, like many cricketers of the Second World War, they landed, if not plum jobs, certainly quite favourable positions. Um, Len Hutton famously was a, a, a PE instructor, fitness instructor. He, he was performing that role when he, he slipped on an exercise mat, injured his left arm, had to have several operations, which totally changed his batting style for the post-war Hutton. He had famously one left, yeah. his left arm was much shorter than his right arm. Um, Les Ames um, and, and Hammond himself. And another person I'm researching at the minute for a future biography, um, Peter Smith, the Essex and England all-rounder, he um, was put in charge of organising cricket out in... Um, out in Egypt. So I think a lot of cricketers' reputations were used within the military. So, well, if this is Len Hutton as your PT instructor, this is Len Hutton, yeah, 364. We, he obviously knows what he's talking about in terms of physical fitness. Same with like having a, It's the equivalent of having uh, going to war today and having Root or, or uh, someone yeah. like that as your, yeah. uh, as your fitness instructor. Tell us a little bit more, uh, actually, because about Compton in India. Was he playing Ranji Trophy cricket or quadrangular, pentangular, as it then was? He, he, he did, actually. And I think there was, there was one match where, obviously, there was a great deal of political tension in India at the time. And the crowd swarmed onto the field. And the, the players feared that there was going to be some sort of major incident that they'd swarmed on many of them to pat Compton on the back and seek his autograph. Um, so in terms of cricket, it largely seemed to avoid the political, um, religious turmoil that, that was that was occurring in India at the time. So it's probably quite fortunate for those cricketers. Was he playing Ranji Trophy? He did, he did actually play in the Ranji Trophy then. Yeah, which of course was not set communal, wasn't it? It was... Uh... It was I think yeah. he was playing for the Europeans. We just have to. Oh, he played for the Europeans in the pentangular, did he? Absolutely. So I think I think I think Compton, as I recall, played for Hawkeye in um, in the Renji Trophy, and he played uh, in the match which had the record aggregate of first class runs. Uh, the, the, the sort of four enormous innings to which, um, and he contributed to two of them, as I remember. Um, but um, John, I want to, you mentioned you touched on on women's cricket in both world wars. The war gives a lift to women's cricket. Uh, both the wars give a lift to women's cricket, don't they? They give it and they give it up, give a lot of opportunities for women to play cricket. Before the Great War, cricket had basically played in in England by upper class women, um, you know, in private settings, but. Mm. Um, it opened, both world wars open out cricket to a lot more, to many more women of um, you know of different classes, don't they? Yeah, I think obviously a lot of women enter the workplace during the the First World War, um, particularly factory munitions work, and like anybody undertaking a, a physically arduous and, and grueling day job, physical recreation, uh, both from a, um, a body point of view and a mind point of view becomes even more important. So there were quite a few works leagues established, particularly popular in the in the sort of the Lancashire mill towns and around other factories. So yes, um women also there's there's very famous pictures which are in the um the first world war book of um R W R N S uh women playing cricket and um 
women playing cricket out in France at the, at the one of the base camps. Uh, and there were a few, I won't call them novelty matches, but a few men v women matches where men were playing under a handicap that could only bat ball and field left-handed. Um, mm. one, one took place in Bradford, um, which, which drew comment from the, the local paper. But yes, in both world wars, <clears throat> women were given the opportunity to play and it was considered important that they had the opportunity because, as I say, the um, the, the necessity of, of keeping physical and mental morale up. With Eileen Ash, the, the famous, famous uh, England international cricketer, who I think was at Spletchley, wasn't she, during World War II, Richard? Did she play, keep, keep up her game? Um, I don't know whether she kept up the game. She played both before and, and after the war. As a recall, she died recently at age 110. Um, and, um, but uh, can't recall whether she managed to play during the war. That's something that's uh, lost of a record. Um, they, um, during the Second World War, I want to move on a little bit, they, they played cricket in, in the Netherlands and Denmark, more or less as a defiance of the Nazi occupation authorities, playing an English game. And I've just discovered that they managed to go on playing a bit of cricket in the Channel Islands in um, um, uh, in Victoria College in Jersey, where some of the boys, um, you know, stayed on and weren't evacuated, uh, as as most of the school was. And I'm trying to find out a bit of more about that, which I'm gladly share with you, John. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, that, that, the, the, there was sort of yes, say, almost protest cricket played in some areas, but the. The Germans and even the the Japanese um, were quite happy to allow some form of cricket to take place in the prisoner of war camps. So there's a lovely account in the book um, Express Deliveries by Bill Bowes. Bowes was taken prisoner at Tobruk in 1942, uh, and the, the him and the, he was he was incarcerated with Freddie Brown, I think. Um, they organized a, a yard in, in a camp and they, they had it painted white they had the green out so they basically made it into a, a concrete re recreation of, a, of an english cricket ground it's quite a moving account of playing cricket there but even more moving were the famous matches played in the japanese camps between the australians and the english had ben barnett the australian wicket keeper was a, was a prisoner of war the japanese um on the english side wilf wooler and uh, jeff edrich um, Len Munzer, Brian Castor, the secretary of, of Essex County Cricket Club, and after after one one account of a one of those matches, and Jeff Edridge said after the war, we were prisoners no longer. That the, the cricket had lifted these men who were experiencing the absolute worst degradation, uh, physical decay, potential moral decay. Cricket, much like religion did and Christianity did in, the, in those prison camps, lifted men above themselves and above their conditions. And there's another um, lovely story of uh, E.W. Swanton. He was also a prisoner of the Japanese. And he'd managed to somehow get a, a battered 1939 wisdom into camp. And in the evening would read read the reports of the, um, the 1938 ashes to lift the prisoners back to a, a happier time and, you know, it's actually quite moving just talking about it now. Um, Very, I mean, it's yeah. it's so moving. Did it did Swanson these? I hadn't realised about these ashes matches in in Shaggy. Did Swanson play, or did he just write match reports? And uh, I, I don't think he. I, I didn't find a report of him actually playing. Um, 
I know he was, I mentioned religion as well, which is another one of my sort of strong interests. Um, Swanson was an Anglo-Catholic and had and sort of kept that faith with him throughout throughout the war. I mean, in terms of the impact of the war on cricket, it's much like the impact of the war on religious faith. It did not destroy it, but what it did, it meant that when people came out, both of the First World War and the Second World War, <clears throat> they sought a return to pre-war familiarities. People wanted to go back to that almost lost pre-war utopia. And therefore, cricket, both in the 1920s and in the 1950s, ossifies. There was great potential for change. During the Second World War, the main focus of high-profile matches had been two teams called the British Empire Eleven. Bertie Clark was a eminent member, and the um, London Counties eleven, And they had played free-flowing, fun, big-hitting, fast bowling, leg-spin bowling, um, very entertaining one-day matches because the idea was to lift morale and, uh, you know, provide entertainment for, for, for wartime Britain. Um, but after the war, the concept of these top players playing thrilling one-day cricket was put to one side. There, there was a suggestion that a first-class um, cricket cup be inaugurated, imaginatively called the Knockout Cup. Um, but as we know, that was put to one side until 1963. The professional amateur distinction carried on through the through the 1950s, and, and similar to the First World War. The, the, the period before the First World War had a, really, a, a time of great innovation in cricket, the development of a county championship. Um, but again, the administrators wanted uh, to particularly clamp down on professionals after the First World War. As we've seen, the Bradford League had attracted Hobbs and Barnes, and, and Barnes himself had worked out it was far more beneficial for him to play league cricket on a weekend for not much less money than he would receive for playing for Lancashire or any other county club. Um, so he carried on playing league cricket after the First World War. So it was made a stipulation that if you had any aspirations to play for England, the only way you would get selected if you, is if you were playing for first-class county. So English English cricket in particular sort of became set in aspic for quite a few years after both World Wars. Mm. They were very concerned, weren't they, the cricket authorities, um, or certainly in a lot of counties, with... With the professionals who'd become officers, weren't they, during the during the First World War? You know, this sort of this terrible phrase, didn't they? Temporary gentlemen. Temporary gentlemen, and and particularly, you know, after the Second World War, you had Les Ames, professional cricketer, served as an officer. Um, Herbert Sutcliffe, um, Peter Smith, who I've already mentioned, and the Essex County Cricket Club is something I've sort of re researched quite extensively, and. So these men who had been given, obviously Headley Verity was an officer as well, and, and uh, but these men came back from the war and were suddenly thrust back into a situation where their initials came after their surname on scorecards as opposed to the amateurs. And in the context of Essex, you had Peter Smith, who had led men in the war, had risen to the rank of captain, and then Essex bringing these, what he saw as, I think, wet behind the ears, amateurs straight out of Cambridge University, Trevor Bailey, Douglas Insole, and there was quite a lot of contention in the club about having to still be 
subordinate, subservient to the amateurs. In fact, as, as an aside to that, in 1935, uh, a missive had gone out from the Essex Committee to the professional players saying, on no account are you to refer to our own amateur players or amateur players from other counties by their first name or by nicknames. Uh, you must be Sir or Mr. And one of those professionals was Ray Smith, Peter's cousin. And then during the Second World War, playing as an amateur, he captained the British Empire Eleven. And one of the players he captained was Ken Farns, who would have been one of those Essex amateurs mm-hmm. he'd been told to say Sir or Mr. to. So I often wonder if Ray Smith, you know, when he was captaining Farns in 1940, <laughs> please, Mr. Farns, would you mind opening the bowling from that end? <laughs> <laughs> so, John, the cricket administrators... I mean, they never, it's a completely unprecedented situation, World War I. I mean, they had no preparation way of thinking, dealing with it. Tell us how they actually coped in both world wars with the, uh, with what suddenly came up, came across them. Uh, well, yeah, what I would say is uh, they, I, I researched what I could. Obviously, I was given the brief to write two books of, and I pushed the word count up with my publishers as far as I can, but there was so much more to be researched and so much more to be written. I mean, the, uh, Jeremy Lonsdale has written some fine studies of, of the Yorkshire game dur- during the war. Um, and his conclusion, which I'd concur with, is that um, the fact that, particularly in the First World War, cricket could splinter into various factions. You had the Bradford League, but it's still competitive instincts. You had other league clubs continuing, but just playing friendly competitions. You had the the sort of moral authority of of the Lord Hawke saying cricket should only be played for morale, recreation and charity purposes. And incidentally, several famous charity matches played in 1917 and 18 at Lords involving players from all the Dominions. Um, The fact cricket could almost argue amongst itself, as was ever thus, meant that it could emerge from the war in a stronger state. Because had cricket had the extremists on one end who said cricket has no place in the wartime society, what are you doing playing at these footling games? Pack up your bats, balls and stumps and we'll bring them out on walls over. There would have been very few clubs to come back to. The men coming back from the front, their clubs would have been disbanded. The grounds would have been overgrown or turned over to agriculture. Yeah. So had those extremists had their way, there would have been... Cricket would have been very difficult to rebuild. Equally, had the Bradford League ethos had its way, cricket would have almost been in moral disgrace for having continued business as usual throughout the war. So the fact that different factions, different players, different administrators could each find a place, particularly in the First World War, I think meant that cricket was able to bounce back fairly quickly. And then by the time of the Second World War, Wart Warner, Plum Warner in particular, who'd been heavily involved in charity cricket during the First World War, um, they set in place straight away the British Empire 11, et cetera, and the high-profile charity matches and service matches at Lords. It was almost, it was, we knew what to do now. And Ernie Bevin, um, Minister of Labour, was very heavily in favour of cricket as a morale boost. He was in regular contact with Warner. So can you get a team to go up? To, he wanted to take Warner to get a team up to up to Leeds, after the Dunkirk evacuation, because a lot of wounded were coming back there to Beckett Park Hospital, where my father was serving at the time. Um, so, yeah, cricket very much hit its straps very quickly in the Second World War. But in the First World War, it took a couple of seasons to really find its feet and work out where it should be within a, a total war society. You may not know the answer to this question, but it's, I always feel that the Indian 
soldiers who fought mm. in both wars get in such numbers and with such heroism get overlooked. Um, can you talk? Is there anything about them and cricket? As as I said um, earlier, there is far more cricket than could be fitted into the two books I had time for, and that is another area that needs research. But I did, before coming on your podcast, consult with uh, another friend of your show, uh, Aaron Sengupta, who you had on the other week, his wonderful Elephant in the Stadium book, uh, if anybody would know, he would. And he mentioned a man called Vivian Chiodetti, who was born in Ralpind. I think he played one first-class match. Uh, he was killed in Java. Um, he he also said that in terms of the the Indian National Army, that the, the pro-Japanese elements tried to to raise and to, as a challenge to the British Empire, it wasn't really used as a, as a means of, of recruiting soldiers. Um, cricket wasn't very strong out in Burma and Southeast Asia. So he also said that basically the, the record keeping of Indian cricket in that era isn't very robust. So it's very difficult to find um, records of Indian cricketers and their wartime experiences and what, whether cricket was played sort of in the, the in Indian, Indian Army. But I'm sure... Uh, a diligent and eminent researcher might be able to dig down and find out more, but that's certainly a, a big uh, gap in the historiography at the minute. Both world wars, a lot of British people would have actually encountered Indians and West Indians and people mm -hmm. from their far-flung empire serving in the in the forces and in various theatres of war. I just wondered, have you traced any influence of that on? that contact on, on cricket in England? I mean, for example, did any... A lot of West Indians came mm. to um, England as merchant seamen and, and as labour during the Second World War. Did any of them stay on and play club on oh, yeah, but, cricket? But, but, very much so. And, um, in fact, the, the gentleman who was placed in charge of race relations of a lot of those merchant seamen, particularly in Liverpool, was Larry Constantine. Because of his reputation, he did a lot of work um, to harmonise relations in Liverpool. Um, one or two West Indian cricketers had played Lancashire League cricket before the war. I mentioned Manny Martindale before, Constantine himself. There was one or two West Indian cricketers in the local Huddersfield, in the Huddersfield League, local to me here. Um, and they very much accepted as, as this part of the, the, you know, because they bring a skill and an eminence and a, a sense of glamour. Oh, what a lovely chap. That, that, that's the attitude. But but Constantine, despite his reputation, um, despite the, the dignity with which he disported himself, there was, a, there was a horrific incident. I think it was 1943. He was down in London due to play for a, a Dominion's side at Lord's, and he'd booked into the Imperial Hotel in Bloomsbury. And he entered with his wife, and um, there were several senior... American servicemen also in that hotel. And they basically had a word in the manager's ear and say, we don't want that type. I won't mention the word, but we don't want people mm. like him in here. The manager said, oh, you can stay in one of our hotels. Is it the Bedford Hotel that's opposite? I visited Bloomsbury in the past. But you can stay in one of the hotels, but that one over there, because we don't want to be upset in the, the American high brass. So Constantine, man of dignity, went. He, he brought a case against the hotel for racial discrimination, won it, only wanted sort of token damages, I think, at one pound, which he gave to charity. Mm. So 
Yeah, on the one hand, you've got Bertie Clark, you've got Constantine, you've got these players, you know, in an Empire War effort, playing for the British Empire Eleven. But then that very much clashes with the other prerogative of keeping our American allies on side. John, as we said, two extraordinarily thorough and comprehensive books uh, about cricket in both world wars. Um, How long do they take you to write? And how did you set about um, collating all of this extraordinarily varied uh, detail about players and and theatres in the war? Well, um, I actually wrote this second World War book first, um, and I started writing it in February 2020, and we all know what happened next. (laughs) So (laughs) for several months, um, I had the happy opportunity of um, working through back issues of The Cricketer, the extensive British newspaper archive site, and I've mentioned that there's a big gap in the historiography here. I'm fortunate in researching in an area where there is so much available online. Um, so those were two of the of the main sources of, of information for my book. I was fortunate enough to be able to speak to one or two people who had played cricket or remembered and watched cricket in the war. I received some very nice correspondence from uh, the daughter of a Yorkshire player called Harold Beaumont, who'd been a prisoner of war. Um, so th- that's the way the, the Second World War book was researched. The First World, obviously, beyond living memory. Again, the British newspaper archive hugely extensive and you really get the granular details you get these heartrending accounts of the, you know, the village cricketer who doesn't come back or the the heartrending plea from the mother for any information about her, her son lost at the Somme or, or Eep. Um so say it, within the historiography I mean you very kindly said they they do fill not totally but they do address a gap in in cricket's historiography and I hope it's something that is sort of picked up by other historians or anybody writing a broader history of, of 20th century cricket that these eras aren't glossed over in a paragraph or two, as we mentioned, you know, it's happened in very eminent um, cricket histories in the past. Maybe it's taken some time for people to be able to process. So you talk about Swantham and Altham, but it's so immediate. Yeah. They lived through it so... Well, particularly for Swanton, yes. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I, we all know, I mean, that generation who fought in the war mm. never talked about it, as you as you all know. Mm. I think maybe you, you just needed time to elapse. And what you've done, and I think it's wonderful, is to pay the proper tribute to these incredibly brave and admirable people who served their country and fought fascism. And um, and many gave up their lives. I, I, I think your books are wonderful, and thank you for writing them, and thank you for coming on the show. Well, thank you, Peter, and thank you, Richard. It's been a real honour. So I'm a regular listener to this podcast, and to you know, to be able to take part and contribute, you know, is one of the you know great days in my cricketing authorship life. Well, John, that's a thank. Thank you very much for saying that, and thank you very much for joining us. Just very quickly, uh, have you got another? We hope you've got another book on the stocks. On well, the there's, yeah, there's one year to come out in um, April, I think, or May by pitch publishing on the Australian Imperial Forces 11, who we didn't get to touch on during this podcast, but Mm -hmm. co-written with an Australian academic, uh, Anthony Condon. So there's a book on the AIF tour of England, 1919, and Mm -hmm. I'm beavering away on a a biography of Peter Smith, as I mentioned him earlier, the Essex in England. Well, we look forward to those, John. Thank you again for joining us. 
For now, it's uh, goodbye for me, Richard Heller, in southeast London, which is getting colder but not snowing yet. And goodbye from me, Peter Airborne, in a very bleak Wiltshire.